once you pop, you can't stop kind of drug user. Obviously, we could have, you know, cannabis users who have a spliff on the weekend and simply don't perceive themselves to have a problem. And they might actually just kind of grow out of that the older they get. But because so much of the prison population is our people who, if they use on their release from prison, will immediately return to compulsive daily using and likely be recalled to prison, commit acts of domestic violence, robbery, other crimes. You know, obviously, we want to make sure that those people in particular are getting the education Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Today you're going to hear from Julian Connor-Reed, who's an NHS drug and alcohol recovery worker at HMP Grendon in Buckinghamshire. He's worked within the statutory and voluntary sectors in the fields of addiction, education and criminal justice for over 15 years. And he's a 12 step practitioner and facilitator and writes about addiction and other topics at julianconnorreed.com. Really pleased you could join us today, Julian. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Thanks, Julian. Very good to meet with you. Can you tell us a bit about your career path? Uh, You came to be working in the area of addictions and recovery. Absolutely. Well, that's a story of two parts. And the first part would be to say that I have my own story of addiction and recovery. And I could easily spend several hours talking about that. But for the purpose of this conversation, centering on my work in the custodial environment, I'll give you the short version, which is I picked up a drink at the age of 13, 14 began experimenting with other drugs. And by the age of 17 or 18, I'd crossed the line into full-blown alcoholism. And when I say that, what I mean is this. When I took a drink, the drink took me. So I was unable to control, stop, or moderate my drinking once I took alcohol into my system. I would wake up in the morning and make a firm resolution that I was going to not drink. Sometimes I would be drunk the same day that I made that resolution. My life continued to get progressively more chaotic and unhappy. And I hit bottom, to use recovery terminology, at the age of 26, on my 26th birthday, in fact. And there's many definitions of what it means to hit bottom, but the one that works for me is that I would have done anything to not be me. I no longer wanted to be me. And I was put in touch with the 12-step recovery community, introduced to the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was the beginning of creating a brand new life. And I have been continuously clean and sober for the last 16 years, since August the 8th, 2006. And because of that, I have a life and have had a life, you know, which is truly worth living. So that's the first part of the story. The second part of the story is 
that I always say I'm an educator at heart. So at the age of 18, I worked at a summer camp in West Virginia as a camp counselor, teaching football, rock climbing. I loved that. I loved, you know, that kind of environment, the community environment and teaching. I was working with young children and I did that for five consecutive summers. And then after university, I studied English literature and creative writing at university. And then I taught English as a foreign language in Spain. I got sober in Spain. Well, I did a few weeks in my hometown of Liverpool. And then I had already signed up to teach in Madrid. And so I began teaching at the same time I began my life in sobriety. And I worked in Spain for two years. And then I spent seven years in Italy, working as a, first as a teacher, and then I became a teacher trainer, delivering workshops and seminars to Italian teachers of English, and also workshops to Italian students. And I traveled around the country delivering these workshops and seminars. And then I began working for Oxford University Press, and I worked for OUP as an educational consultant in the south of Italy, in Naples, again, delivering workshops, teacher training seminars. And then I transferred back to the UK because I got a management role at OUP at the head office in Oxford. And that was wonderful for a time. It was great to be back in the UK. That was great. I felt like a tourist in my own country. Oxford was wonderful. But I think the problem started when the word manager appeared in my job title. And when I started to become more preoccupied with commercial outcomes than learning outcomes. And so obviously your salary increases, your job title gets a little bit more fancy and my career satisfaction started to plummet. And I think that is because, like I say, I'm an educator at heart. I need to have my feet on the floor, and I like to be at the coalface. And I had to hit the reset button. And, you know, obviously, I'd always had in the back of the mind, you know, my, my passion for addiction, my knowledge of recovery principles, my passion for helping other people. And then I was able to secure myself a position with inclusion who are part of an NHS trust, an organization who provide health and justice, healthcare, drug and alcohol services to, I think they're one of the largest providers of health and justice, drug and alcohol services in the UK. And that's been great. You know, that was the change of career that the doctor ordered. Some people who are in recovery, often some people, you know, kind of in their first couple of years of recovery, decide that they want to be an addictions counsellor or they want to be a recovery worker and they go off and do that. But I was always, well, I enjoyed the avocational nature, you know, the glorious amateurs of the 12-step fellowship. I was also, you know, I wanted to make sure that I had a very solid 
grounding in my own recovery and a solid knowledge of recovery principles. And so, you know, so I started doing this work a few years ago. So can you just clarify for me, Julian? So because you've been talking about uh, your alcohol abuse over this uh, long period of time, do you see the addictions field as encompassing work with alcohol addiction and addiction to other substances? Absolutely. Well, so, I mean, you know, of course, the the definition of addiction in the broadest possible sense is the continued compulsive use of a substance or a behavior, a process addiction, that is detrimental to the well-being of the individual. Clearly, there are process addictions, sex addiction, gambling addiction, compulsive overeating. I mean, food is a substance, but you also need it to live. Within the custodial environment, generally, we focus exclusively on drug and alcohol addiction. Thanks very much. Yeah, that's a very uh, interesting approach. So as we know, it's very common in, in this particular therapeutic speciality, people with lived experience provide actually a major part of the uh, staff makeup. Do you think the field of addictions is ahead of other areas in terms of practice, including those with uh, lived experience? Yes. Um, and the reason for that, I believe, is that the modern day addiction field was born out of the recovery community. So just to, you know, some historical background in the 1930s, if you had a problem of alcohol or other drugs, you may well be locked up, committed to the insane asylum. If you came from money, you know, your family could probably keep consequences at bay. But if you were a compulsive daily dependent drinker, you know, essentially your choices were, you know, jail or the insane asylum. And obviously I'm talking about the sharp end of the spectrum. And so the 12-step movement, Alcoholics Anonymous was born out of this in the mid-1930s. And actually, Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step fellowships owes a tremendous amount to professionals at the time who had the humility and wisdom to recognize that they were not putting a dent in the alcohol and drug addiction problem. So in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the AA basic text that details how, you know, Bill Wilson, one of the co-founders of AA, had been a patient at the Pounds Hospital addiction specialist treatment in New York in the 1930s. And he'd been in and out several times. He'd come in, they'd dried him out, they'd detoxed him, he'd gone out, he'd had a drink, he'd come back. And then he kind of stumbled across this spiritual approach, psychosocial approach. And he went back to the hospital and said, listen, can I have a crack at speaking with the guys who you're working with? And if you can imagine this at the time, you know, the doctor was not necessarily wild about the idea of having one of his former patients slash inmates come in and lecture the clients. But that Dr. Silkworth, he had the humility to realize that he, he wasn't making the impact that he was hoping he would make. You know, he'd worked with thousands of addicts and alcoholics, and he was just becoming extremely demoralized. So he thought, well, let him have a go. And, and of course, obviously, Alcoholics Anonymous was tremendously successful. 
you know, continues to help men and women stay sober today. Many tens of thousands of men and women around the world. And so to answer your question, yeah, because the field of addiction was born out of that, essentially. And it still relies very much on the humility of practitioners, particularly those with PhDs. The, um, I actually printed off this quote because it's one of my, my favourites. But a professor of addiction, Keith Humphreys, PhD at Stanford, professor of psychiatry, in my opinion, one of the sanest voices today in the field of addiction. Um, he said at the beginning of his career, he had this really dismissive attitude of AA and NA. And he recalls thinking, how dare these people do things that I have all these degrees and qualifications to do. And then his mind was changed when he saw AI and NA's effectiveness. And he saw transformation take place, rapid transformation take place in a matter of months. People who have been chronic, dependent drinkers and users. And at Grendon, we currently have, we started it last year, we have a monthly event that we call Recovery Stories. And we bring in a speaker from the recovery community to share their experience, strength, and hope with Grendon residents. And we pack out one of the community rooms each month. And my colleagues always have a spring in their step after those sessions because when a visitor comes in and shares honestly, and we are generally able to have people who have been drug users and have been in prison and have now been living successfully drug-free in the community for a number of years, and more importantly, have changed in a, a fundamental level. And then the quality of the sharing back from the men, and as you know, David, you know the quality of sharing at Grendon is very good anyway, you know, kind of the men share back in a very open and honest way with a great deal of self-awareness depending on where they are in their therapeutic journey. And so we have these events once a month at Grendon, and they're the highlights of my, of my professional month. And that's not to knock the one-to-one -one sessions that we do and the work that we do, but there's a power in the room and there's a power in that recovery community that is something that professionals are generally not able to replicate. Thank you. You give a, a very clear description uh, uh julian so i mean just to pin you down uh, a little bit what what would you say are the advantages of having had uh, lived experience in in the work that you do i know what's required to recover and i'm able to well diagnose so i wouldn't necessarily use the word diagnose here's a question so we have I work for the NHS. We have a tool called an alcohol audit. I'm sure you've seen it. Questions about units and have you ever failed to do something that was expected of you because of your drinking? And if you have this amount of points, then you could be a dependent drinker. First time I meet somebody and they suggest that they might have had a problem with alcohol, before I get into any clinical assessment paperwork, I'll just ask them a simple question. And I'll say, 
Listen, mate, can I ask you a question? They say, sure thing. And I say, two pints of Stella a day, no more, no less for 30 days. Can you do that? And if they're what Alcoholics Anonymous describe as being the real alcoholic, the type of person that when they take a drink, the drink takes them and the phenomenon of craving is so strong that they would break into an off-license to get alcohol. They will just burst out laughing and they'll go, no chance, no chance. And then that tells me about what that person's drinking is like. But it kind of takes someone who has been there and done that and has experienced what it is to lose all control once you take the first drink and the first drug to proceed with confidence with that type of examination. And so it's about knowledge of the person. You see, the person often doesn't know that they're in hell because to them, their life seems normal. As odd as it may seem, many people who are addicted to alcohol and other drugs don't see themselves as being addicted to it. They think it's normal. And a lot of the upbringings that these guys had, and women as well, obviously, in the female estate, you know, many of them were given drugs and alcohol by their parents at the age of eight, at the age of nine. And so why wouldn't they think it was normal? And so it's the confidence to understand that the person is currently living in hell, but they might not be aware of that. And also to understand how their life could be transformed by recovery, particularly the guys who were in, out, in, out, in, out. And if I could just tell you actually a, a kind of, you know, just give you an example when it comes to relapse prevention. You know, let's say you have a certain type of person, let's say they're addicted to heroin or to alcohol and they get arrested, sent to Bullingdon for a short sentence, you know, six months, seven months, and they arrive. And, you know, they're kind of determined to clean themselves up. And so what do they do? They hit the gym, start eating well, you know, and actually feeling good. And you go and see them and said, would you like to engage with us? No, I'm doing good. I've got a new addiction, the gym. I said, it's not going to save you. Not going to save you. And what will happen is that person will say that they have a genuine intention to not drink and take drugs on their release from prison. And they would probably pass a lie detector test. They probably genuinely mean it. And they will relapse within 72 hours of leaving the prison and probably come back fairly quickly. And this is what I'm so keen to educate the men on my caseload about, about effective relapse prevention. And so the question that you asked many moons ago was about the benefits of lived experience. I know what is going to happen. I know it on an experiential level and an intuitive level. And I can see if a person is presenting in a certain way, the flaws in their thinking, based on what they tell me, the nature of their relationship with alcohol and other drugs is exactly how things are going to pan out when they're released. Sounded, Julian, when you were talking earlier about the the monthly recovery meetings as well, though, like one of one other thing you might be offering is hope. You know, that when people can hear this example of someone who's been there and yet has somehow managed to do things very differently. And I, and I suppose another thought that occurs to me from talking to other 
other people as well, is that sense of taking away the shame when someone's starting on a journey of recovery, that actually to hear to, I think when people are starting out in therapy, that's very difficult to talk about the things that you feel most ashamed of. And actually, if you're, if you're met with somebody who's been there and had that experience, it might make it easier to start the talk, even if further down the line, being able to talk about it with people who haven't had that experience might become important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we have a saying, true hope, real hope can often only spring from hopelessness because there's such a thing as false hope. And again, the example that I've just given, smashing the gym, pull-ups are going to sort me out, you know, 20-year history of addiction, but the gym's going to sort me out, you know. That's false hope, and it's not rooted in reality. And one of the things that I've realized after being in recovery for many years, what has changed me working at Bullingdon, Huntercombe, Brendan, is that I now better understand my own recovery journey because I've spent a lot of time trying to translate what I know on an intuitive level to people who might not be from a similar background, to people who might not have had similar experiences and trying to find the commonality. So the work of um, David Best, he's a professor of addiction here in the UK, and he talks a lot. Are you familiar with the CHIME model for treating mental health? The CHIME model, CHIME stands for connection, hope, identity, meaning, and empowerment. And so work like that, learning about the CHIME model, I get to see, ah, okay, this is helping me to translate my lived experience in a language that will help me to better assist these men get their lives in order. So, I mean, the idea of identity is massive. And one thing that we're trying to do at Grendon is to create a really vibrant recovery community and culture. So we celebrate people's clean time. We celebrate people's recovery. We let the men in Grendon know that their recovery and their clean time is a big deal to us. You know, it means a lot to us. And that's to try and get them on the subject of identity to begin for them to see themselves as people who fundamentally don't drink and don't take drugs. And so actually now, a lot of my work is based around this idea of identity. And particularly with alcohol, you know, how the culture is here in the UK, you know, big, strong men who are absolutely terrified to pick up the phone and say to their people at home, listen, I need to not be drinking again. Because what will people think? And how will they connect with those people? So if I write a care plan goal, develop a strong non-using identity, strong sober identity. So if I see myself as being a gym rat, that means it doesn't matter if it's raining, hailstones or snow, I'm working out, I'll hit the gym and I'll do what I need to do. 
because it's my identity. I see myself as being someone who does that. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with the men at Glendon to develop this really rock solid, strong, non-using identity. It takes time, it takes time. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but we're, we're working towards that. Thank you very much again, uh, Julian. So again, thinking about lived experience and the value of, of that, is there any possibility that the other side of, of that is that it brings with it certain limitations or potential vulnerabilities that need to be borne in mind? I think, as I've just said, lived experience is only at its most beneficial when it's understood, translated, communicated effectively for the benefit of others. And lived experience, I mean, to be honest, I, still the term does make me cringe a little bit because it's kind of become a, you know, lived experience. And there's a great quote that I wrote out in the textbook Perspectives in Male Psychology, also popularly known as lived experience. Anecdotal evidence may be useful and emotionally powerful but it's not a replacement for or equivalent to properly conducted scientific evidence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let me put it this way. When I have to make a proposal to therapy policy at Grandin, I'm not trying to win an argument based on my lived experience. I want it to be based on the validity of the ideas and perceived benefits of the men in our care. I draw on the bank of lived experience because you know, that's who I am, and it informs everything I do. But I need to be sure that I'm not using that as a, my lived experience, pop trump card. And I think we need to be very careful because it's about humility, and we need to be careful about who we elevate. And that applies to people who have PhDs. It applies to people have lived experience it applies to everybody every day and so yeah i don't worship at the altar of lived experience but it is important if i understood you correctly earlier on you were describing really how your own lived experience provides you with the clarity to make the kind of judgments that you do when you're actually working person to person so i can well understand what you're saying about yeah, taking the argument to the therapy policy meeting and needing to have a good kind of empirical uh, argument to carry your case. But actually, it seems that it's the other side. It's the more personal side which carries or gives you the kind of conviction in your you know, sensitive work with individuals. And that's the perfect word. And that conviction comes from having been where that person is, you know, and and also knowing that there's a new life on offer, but that person cannot imagine what that is. And so, and you mentioned hope before, Naomi. So it's actually this delicate balancing act between you continue along this path, you are heading for destruction, pain, and a world of pain you can't even quite imagine. It's never so bad that it can't get worse but I'm trying to sell you a vision of what this life might look like without drugs, 
because there's an incredible life that's there for the taking for many of these men. So it is about giving them that, that vision. But actually what's interesting is in terms of relapse prevention, sometimes the reasons that a person gets clean and gets sober won't be sufficient to keep them clean and sober. So actually, you know, the data is quite clear. What will help a person stay clean and sober is if they create a life that they want to protect. So many people, you know, come in just because their life is awful. My life's awful and, you know, it needs to be different. And then they create this life in recovery and then they want to protect what they've got. And so that's important, you know, that the men do experience joy, happiness, peace of mind, uh, emotional stability. And then, you know, they can crack on with living. Thank you. And Julie, you're, so you're working in a, in a prison and we know that addictive behaviour and substance misuse is, is very common in the backgrounds of, of people in prison. Do you have any figures that you could share with our listeners at all? Yeah, I mean, approximately half prison population in the UK. Again, it's difficult to know with figures, you know, the National Drug Treatment Monitoring Service, Sometimes it depends how it's being read, how it's being interpreted. It might not necessarily take into account. I mean, I should also clarify as well. Much of the conversation that we've been having is based around the once you pop, you can't stop kind of drug user. Obviously, we could have, you know, cannabis users who have a spliff on the weekend and simply don't perceive themselves to have a problem and they might actually just kind of grow out of that the older they get. So, but because so much of the prison population is our people who, if they use on their release from prison, will immediately return to compulsive daily using and likely be recalled to prison, commit acts of domestic violence, robbery, other crimes. You know, obviously we want to make sure that those people in particular are getting the education about themselves and about alcohol and drug use that they deserve. But, you know, it's approximately half, half the prison population. Here's a quick story for you. I, um, we had the pleasure of hosting Dame Carol Black at Grendon last year. And she obviously conducted this lengthy government review into drug strategy, drug policy, allocation of resources in the UK. Incredible lady, really interesting lady. And there was a question I was, I was dying to ask her and I, I got her alone for a minute. And I said, uh, I said, I'm dying to ask you this. So you've been commissioned to do this, um, this drug strategy, drug policy report, is there not this bottle-shaped elephant in the room called alcohol? How do you, how do you separate harms caused by alcohol, harms caused by addictive drugs? There's men on my caseload who will only take cocaine if they have a drink of alcohol. There are men on my caseload who, if they take a drink of alcohol, all bets are off. And then there's others 
who have been addicted to heroin and can take or leave alcohol and don't like it at all. But I was really keen to just ask Dame Carroll that question because it just, you know, if you go to A&E on a Friday night, a Saturday night, one o'clock in the morning, what are you going to see? Problems relating to alcohol. And Dame Carroll was great. And, you know, she acknowledged, you know, she acknowledged that it's a challenging distinction to, to draw. And she said, you know, obviously that she was pleased that some of the resources that were going to be allocated as a result of her work would go to, you know, alcohol service as well. And obviously we, drug and alcohol services, we kind of work hand in hand. Thank you. And how, how does a period in custody affect people with addictive behaviours? Do prisons do enough? Do we, you know, there's lots of stories of people going to prison and developing addictive behaviours. What, what are your thoughts? Could be a fantastic opportunity. It can be a fantastic opportunity, you know, particularly for people serving a shorter sentence, you know, to get themselves in order, to learn about addiction, psychoeducation, to learn about themselves. Yeah, obviously, look, I'm hoping that I will have men who leave prison and don't relapse and are able to crack on. But, you know, we all have various metrics of success. And one of my metrics of success is, have I ruined your drinking and drug taking? Because, you know, many men, you know, there's a saying, there's nothing worse than a belly full of booze and a head full of AA. You know, once you know, you know what you are, you know it doesn't agree, you know you shouldn't be doing it. And so when, you know, people relapse and they sometimes say, you know what, I stopped enjoying it really quickly. And that's a metric of success for us, you know, because they're on the they're on the road to change. But it's a great opportunity. One of the challenges of working at Grendon is the length of sentence. You know, when I worked at Bullingdon, when I worked at Huntercombe, what's good about that is that people have still have that painful memory of their last using episode, and they also have you know release kind of coming up. So the mind tends to be quite focused. One of the real challenges about working in jail is incarceration denies the men the opportunity to do what I used to do, to wake up after a bad night on the drink and say, I'm never going to do that again and be drunk by midday. So I had a track record of trying really hard to stay sober and not being able to. So as soon as I was given the information about alcoholism, addiction, and the recovery pathway, I was like, well, sign me up at the age of 26. Because I've been trying to get it under control since the age of 18. That brings us very nicely to the question of whether sterile environments help or hinder. You, know, you see people who are in drug-free, drink-free environments and then come out and then just start going straight back on the substance again. So... It's basically a case of if it's a long sentence. So, for example, imagine that you've come to Grandin, you've done four years of therapy, and you might not have used drugs for seven, eight years. And then you have me saying, listen, you know that problem that you think is not a problem anymore? When we take a look at that, no one ever thanks me for opening that Pandora's box up. And it can be really challenging because the men think that it's sorted. 
and I have to tap them on the shoulder and say, you need to be very careful because you might think that your long period of enforced abstinence has, A, qualified you to drink or use in a moderate manner, or B, qualified you to not use. So it's a paradox, and there are many paradoxes in recovery work. As I said earlier, we celebrate the men's clean time and their achievements. You know, when they celebrate a year, you know, or a month or five years, we make a big deal and let them know that, you know, they should celebrate that and be proud of that. But it also doesn't count because, well, actually, no, that's a bit harsh. It does count. But I always say in the custodial environment, you are in a swimming pool with armbands in the shallow end. Out there, it's the deep blue sea and you're swimming with sharks and dolphins. And it's a whole different ball game because when you get out, you're heavily incentivized not to use drugs within the custodial mm-hmm. environment, mm-hmm. heavily incentivized because it can have an effect on your sentence. And certainly at Grendon, you know, you could be deselected from therapy. But when you get out and when you go into Sainsbury's and you see the magic wall, Smanoff, Cardi, Jack Daniels, and you just went in there for a lettuce. And you've got your lettuce in your shopping basket. Do you see what I mean? You've never had that. You've never had that experience. So that's the challenge mm-hmm. of the environment. I always say to the men, I wish we were having this conversation in the high street, watching people in a beer garden across the way, seeing kids smoking spliffs at the bus stop, because this environment jail is a false sense of being and a therapeutic community like Grendon is a false sense of being within a false sense of being, you know, so it's another it's another layer. Thank you. Julie, when we spoke in preparation for having this conversation, uh, we spoke a little bit about the idea of toxic compassion. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by this and why it's so relevant for those in recovery from addiction. Yeah, absolutely. I think this probably relates to the age old distinction between sympathy and empathy. And often in the addiction field, I think there are too many people who are keen to offer sympathy as opposed to empathy and helping people climb out of the hellish predicament that they're in. There is an increasingly, I suppose, what I would call a progressive tendency to view addicts and alcoholics as sacred victims meaning don't blame the poor addict. You'll see on Twitter all the time, you'll see people say things like addiction is not a moral failing. And my response to that would be, whilst a person is in the grip of an addictive behavior, whilst no one at the age of 12 or 13 says, when I grow up, I want to play football for Everton and be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. There is a moral component to addiction recovery. So when people say that addiction is not a moral failing, often it sounds like they're saying addicts are not responsible for anything that happens to them and play no part in their own recovery journey. Depending on the ideology of the person who is saying that statement. So 
I try to help people recover from addiction. And that's a difficult conversation to have. That is a challenging piece of work. You have campaigns to reduce and eliminate stigma. Some of them are very good. Some of them come dangerously close to promoting and normalizing drug use. Dangerously close. The tone of some anti-stigma campaigns are basically, well, you know, people want to use, it's fine. You know, that's not the work that I do. Harm reduction is very important. Clearly, no one can recover if they're dead. So harm reduction work is very important in the community and in the custodial environment. But toxic compassion for me is about practitioners who care more about how they feel than about whether or not they are helping to affect change in the individuals on the caseload. And I'm always thinking that however challenging our interactions might be, it's a kiss on a baby's cheek compared to the beating that whiskey, vodka, heroin, crack cocaine will put on these men and their families. And so, you know, it's very important that we give them every opportunity to walk out of that gate with a fighting chance. You've, you've mentioned uh, sexual addiction in passing already. And I suppose, you know, one might think of some kinds of sex offendings as reflecting a sex addiction. Do you think there might be a place for using you know, those with lived experience in the treatment of you know, sexual offending? It's a really interesting question. Absolutely not my area of expertise. So the answer to this question will be me thinking out loud. Just to say, Julian, I mean, I think quite often when we have guests on, they feel like unless they've researched something thoroughly, sometimes they shouldn't offer an opinion. But you do have expertise around addiction, that which is so your opinion yeah. count. That's not to say that it has to be based in fact or right, but we're interested in your opinion. Good stuff. So what I would say is this. When we have our recovery stories events at Grandin, we're very careful about who we invite to share with the men. I know all the men and women who have come to Grand, and I know them personally. I'll have heard them speak before, and I vouch for them. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't have problems and relapses don't happen, but generally, I'm very confident in the members of the recovery community who I invite to Grandin to speak to our service users. And so, what I would be interested to know is, what is the metric of success? So if you were talking about a peer supporter for sexual offences, I suppose I would say, would you be fine to have that peer supporter at your house, at your dinner table, around your children? Do you vouch for them as much as it would be possible? for somebody to vouch for another person. Now, again, I might be betraying my ignorance about what the metrics of success are and what you would view as a suitable candidate for someone to be a peer supporter. But obviously, I think if you're going to have someone as a peer supporter, it needs to be someone 
who you have seen radical change, someone who has done a significant amount of work, someone who is, if they've not entirely eradicated the behaviours, they've certainly turned the volume down a significant amount. So I guess, yeah, it sounds like it could potentially be a great idea. I'm just um, thinking about, we had, um, last week we published a conversation with Belinda Winder, who spoke a little bit about circles of support, and just thinking that's probably working in some ways in a similar a similar way the idea that you you get peer support from people who might have similar struggles but I suppose I also wondered whether you know just in terms of developing treatment maybe not so much in terms of offering support outside in the community but thinking about how people who have experience of sexual offending might be able to contribute something really useful and valuable to the kinds of treatments that are developed and offered to people who who have that kind of behaviour problem. Certainly one of my concerns is that for men who I've worked with who have history of sexual offences, I do worry about how they will integrate into the wider recovery community when they are released from prison. It's something I'm keen to learn more about, and I'm certainly keen to be able to find pathways of support for men who might have certain license conditions, might have certain obstacles that prevent them from engaging in the recovery community and men who would be very concerned if people were to find out about their previous offending behaviour. So yeah, it's definitely something I, I want to look into, you know, in terms of how to better support men who I work with who have committed offences of a sexual nature how to help them integrate and have a, a good chance at achieving recovery in the community. Thanks very much for that answer. I think that's very helpful. And it'd be good if you and your colleagues could give some thought to that area, really, because as we know, sex offenders tend to be vilified and demonised, and most of the programmes to treat them haven't been effective. So we're down a bit of a cul-de-sac as it is. It's certainly an area, you know, I'll look forward to learning more about. Great. So to move on to the next, yeah, highly interesting area, because what we also know uh, about the field of uh, addictions treatment is that very often there's a kind of spiritual element in that. And I think that's true of the roots of AA and a number of other groups that have spun off from AA. Why do you think uh, spirituality is so prominent in work with addictions? So I always use my wife as an example. My wife is a normal, moderate, temperate social drinker. She can have a glass and a half of wine, put the cork in the bottle, put the bottle in the fridge, and six weeks have gone by and she's forgotten it's her. She likes having the occasional glass of wine, but it is clear to me that alcohol does not produce the same effect in her as it did in me and with other people who are dependent drinkers and dependent drug users. Where I'm going with this is that when I used to take a drink of alcohol, I would have a spiritual experience. I would touch the face of God. Now people would say, oh, do you like the taste? Do you like the effect? You know, I like the taste and effect of Nesquik milkshake, but I never drank 25 litres of it. So 
for the addict, for the alcoholic. And this is where lived experience comes in handy. Their relationship to alcohol and other drugs is a unique relationship. It does something. You know, you can say, oh, well, it's a coping mechanism. You can use this clinical language. It fixes them. You know, the closest thing to communion with God, you know, to use religious language. And as I've already said, the 12-step fellowship grew out of the humility of practitioners in the last century who liked what they saw in AA and were humble and honest to enough to admit that they weren't really helping people like they hoped they'd be able to. And Carl Jung, he wasn't aware of it, but he had a patient called Roland Hazard, wealthy American businessman, I think back in the 30s. And this American businessman had all the money at his disposal. He could go, come to Europe, and be treated at Carl Jung's clinic for months at a time. And he went there, and they do work, and he would leave that clinic convinced that relapse was unthinkable and be drunk before he got back to the States. Or last a few days and then pick up. And he came back to Carl Jung, and he said, look, you need to tell me the truth. Why can't I get well? And Carl Jung was a great man, a great man. And he put his hands up in the air and said, I don't think I can help you. You're doomed. Now, he could have said, oh, listen, come back to the clinic. I'll write you another Valium prescription. Stay for another three months. Keep paying me what you pay. He didn't do that. He said, sorry, you have the mind and body of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen a case recover to the extent that I've seen this condition exist in you. And Roland Hazard is obviously a little bit concerned about this. And he goes, well, what? You know, but that's it. I'm doomed to an alcoholic death. And Carl Jung said, no, there's just one thing. He said, since the beginning of time, there have been alcoholics who have recovered by having a sudden and vital spiritual experience and an emotional upheaval that rearranges them and puts them on new footing. And Roland Hazard said, oh, well, that's great. I go to church. And uh, Carl Jung shook his head and said, so you're not going to do it. That's not going to do it. And, you know, William James talks about this in the variety of religious experiences. Great book. Again, you know, influential book in the early days of the Alcoholics Anonymous literature. And so Roland Hazard, he went back to the States and he fell in with a church group and he did have a spiritual experience and recover from alcoholism. Many years later, in 1961, Bill Wilson, co-founder of AA, is corresponding with Carl Jung. Bill Wilson sends him a note to say, you probably aren't aware, but you actually played a part in the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Carl Jung said, he basically replied to Bill Wilson and said, oh, well, you know, I, I don't deserve any credit, but it's nice for you to, to say this. And, you know, so Carl Jung confirmed that the AA program, spiritual development, was the correct direction. He said that he believed that the addict, the alcoholic, the craving for alcohol and other drugs was the equivalent on a low level of our thirst for wholeness, of oneness, to feel complete. 
the union with God, to use the language of the time, that even then psychologists and psychiatrists were not crazy about using because they were trying to put distance between themselves and religion. And so Carl Jung said he had this formula, a Latin formula, which was spiritus contra spiritum. Spiritus in Latin meaning alcoholic beverages, and then a spiritual awakening being the antidote to addiction. That's the clearest answer I've ever heard to that particular question. But there's just something I'd just like to add quickly. I'm aware that I have been using terms like addict, alcoholic, and of course we live in a world where people become very concerned about language. And people say you shouldn't use terms like addict and alcoholic because it's mean and it stigmatizes and da 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 da. And, you know, sometimes I'll say to those people, well, why don't you come with me and visit the liver ward at the John Radcliffe Hospital and tell me that you don't like that word? Because often people are talking about people who are perhaps not dependent drinkers and they're talking about people who perhaps, yeah, it would be a stigmatizing an off-putting term and absolutely not helpful at all because they don't necessarily meet the criteria of alcoholism. However, we will never apply those labels to people. If people are comfortable using them and applying them to themselves, then that's absolutely fine. You know, in the clinical setting, we'll use alcohol dependent. But I was speaking to someone on the caseload last year and it was, it was brilliant. You know, this is someone who's been in recovery for a long time within the custodial environment. And we're having a chat about this, you know, labels and stigma and, you know, how do you feel about being an addict? And he said, you know, some, some grand and wisdom here. He said, well, I suppose for some people, a label is an anchor that weighs them down. He said, but for me, the term addict is a life jacket that keeps me afloat. And I thought, yeah, I love that. I thought he's kind of summarized it perfectly there. So it's about what's in the best interests of the service user and, and the person. Thank you. I mean, the thing about stigma is a very uh, mobile, flexible energy, and it will quickly shift on to the next word or phrase or term yeah. of description that we use. So I suppose what you're saying is that it's always just important to be very sensitive to the particular context and the particular yeah, sensitivities of the individual. Absolutely. Finally, uh, Julian, you look like a very healthy guy. How do you keep yourself emotionally? You can't see inside my head. No, well, that's the same for all of us. So how do you keep yourself emotionally nourished? You know, I have a family. I enjoy walking. I exercise play the guitar, I love writing. Writing's great because you can't do other things at the same time. When you're writing, you have to be writing. And that is, you know, that really can be a form of meditation. You know, when you sit down and just get your ideas out. But, you know, so I have lots of hobbies, lots of interests, lots of passions. You know, I'm an active member of the recovery community so i'll finish my work at brendan and then i'll do and go and do the same thing in the community on an avocational basis and i'm more than happy to to do that but 
I'll answer the question because this is a conversation I have with the man on my caseload on a daily basis. How do I keep myself well? Resentment. I try to avoid it like the plague. Self-pity. I try to avoid it like the plague. Of all the years I've been working, you know, in the field of addiction, the single biggest relapse trigger is that subcategory of resentment known as self-pity. Person's just feeling hard done by. Life's not going their way, you know, and they know what will make them feel better. And it's a really strange thing because self-pity, no one wants to admit that they suffer from self-pity. And in the field of addiction recovery, it's such a massively important component of wellness and being healthy-minded and avoiding relapse. And I'll absolutely apply that to myself. So to keep myself well, I try and process resentment quickly. I try and avoid self-pity like the plague. And I do that by cultivating an attitude of gratitude or, or doing my best to do that. And also to take what I do seriously, but to try not to take myself too seriously. That's a great answer. Mm, it was. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed, Julian. Pleasure to meet you. Oh, a pleasure. And uh, yeah. like I say, I'm a massive fan of the show. So thank you for having me on. Thank you. I think it was a great conversation.